0: Wondering about Charlie? He'll be back next week. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> he and uh, some of the McCall's and some of the Shafers are in Pennsylvania uh, this weekend celebrating Jonathan and after wedding. You know, they haven't had a time yet with the, the Funk family yet, so they're up there doing that. So he'll be back next week. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter six. And uh, also, uh, when you get a chance. Find Hebrews chapter 4, stick your finger in there, put a bookmark there because that's the passage we'll be cross-referencing quite a bit throughout the, the morning. So Luke chapter 6, we'll read that together now and then we'll look from time to time at Hebrews chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, now remember the word Sabbath is, means rest and that word will be used six times in these verses. So repetition equals emphasis. So let's remember that Sabbath and rest. Verse 1, now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were picking the, the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, said, have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. He was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and, and there was a man who there was a man there whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might have, find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they, were do, what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he got up and he came forward. Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? to save a life or destroy it. After looking around at them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. You who alone are sovereign yet desire us. We thank you for the privilege that it truly is for us to be yours, to live in your control, to know you through your son, Jesus, and to live with this confidence and this rest. We ask for your wisdom, Lord, as we work through this passage together to listen to you, both as the one who is speaking and those who are listening, that you be honored, you be glorified, you be seen, you be desired. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to ask such incredible things. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So rest, six times it comes up in this passage, rest, the Sabbath. I think how applicable it is for us after the year that we have experienced, all the frustration that we've shared with each other, and even so often in our conversations, the anger that we share with each other. Is rest a reality for us? Or is it simply something that we just talk about because we know we're supposed to? Is rest a reality? Or is it just that unattainable carrot at the end of the stick? The word Sabbath here refers to the seventh day of the week, so Saturday. And we know in the Old Testament that it was a day for them to rest from their work. It wasn't a day of laziness. It wasn't a day of sleeping all all day long. But it was a rest from their work, from their activity. Its origin goes all the way back to the creation account in Genesis. Turn with me to chapter 2, and let's let's be reminded of this, how it first shows up and what it was meant to be. Genesis chapter 2, on In verse 2, we see the seventh day is recorded, and it's been after the six days of creation. And on the sixth day, of course, man being created. And what was it that man is to know after his creation, but what God brings about on the seventh day. In verse 2 of chapter 2 in Genesis, we read this. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. He set it apart because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. The word rest here in these two verses means to cease and to celebrate. To stop, not in the middle of something, but to stop at the completion of something and then celebrate. The incredible thing that we're being taught here, a picture that we see that is to be a reality for man since creation. To cease and to celebrate. I used to work as a framer and well, when living in British Columbia attending Bible College, one of the traditions that we had there, which I enjoyed a lot, uh, at the end of a job, after we had it framed up and in the dry, we would have a roofing party. And the way we would declare it to the community is one of us would go into the brush, cut down a tree, bring it back out and nail it to the top of the building that we had just finished. It was kind of a tradition in the area at the time and people knew who drove by that we had finished our work. It was completed. There wasn't another nail to drive, not another board to cut. The foreman would go into town and would get lots of food and bring it back. We'd pull out the saw horses and drop the plywood on top of the horses and just pile the food on top of this this table that we had just put together. And we would spend the rest of the day, we had dropped our tool belts and would spend the rest of the day celebrating the finished work that had been accomplished. That's the idea that we see here with, with God at the end of creation. He was finished, not because he was tired he ceased, not because he was tired, but because he was finished Someone once pointed out that God, the God that began the building showed himself well able to finish. We see this through, true throughout Scripture when we get to Philippians and we find that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will continue it until the day of completion. He is a finisher of what he starts And we find here in creation that man is to enjoy what God has completed. But we know the fall comes in Genesis chapter 3. We know that the rest that was supposed to be reality for man is, is, is now frustration. So are we doomed to never know this rest because of the fall? To only chase that carrot to the end of our days? To only see the promise but never know the reward until someday in heaven. Is that for us? Well, the first thing I want to point out is that Scripture is clear. That this rest we're talking about is to be a present day reality for those who have placed their faith in Christ. Are you hearing what I'm saying? That this rest that we're talking about is supposed to be a reality for you right now where you sit. You know, and, and what an incredible thing to talk about in the midst of all that we as mankind have dealt with and continue to deal with in this last year. As Christians, our frustration with not being able to meet together. Our anger in that. Our fear in that. Are we knowing the rest that is supposed to be ours? Look at chapter 4 of Hebrews. In verse 1, look how the writer starts off with this. He's after talking about rest in chapter 3 of Hebrews. He goes on and he says this in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear. Now some of your Bibles may say uh, something else besides fear. But really, a a strong direct translation would be this fear. Let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Let us fear. Who is us? Well, according to chapter 3, verse 1, we see that in Hebrews, there's clear that us are believers who are to consider Jesus, our apostle and high priest. So he's not addressing the non-believer. He's talking to the believer here. And he says that there's something that we as believers need to fear. We need to fear that we do not know his rest. See, the promise remains. That promise is there for us today We are to know His rest. And that word rest, remember, in in Genesis, rest meant to cease and celebrate. Here the word means to cease. It's almost like one person wrote the Bible, isn't it? And it's concerned that any of us may come short of this, of not knowing that rest And you may be thinking, and I've got to tell you that it has been my experience that one of the things that has aggravated believers more than anything else that I've experienced in in, in preaching and in teaching has been this topic, rest. I've had people debate me on it. I've had people come up to me angry about this. How am I supposed to know rest? How can you say that? I have a wife, I have children, I have debt, I have a job, I have my own business. I have and, and just list the things. How am I supposed to know rest? How dare you talk about rest? And how dare you say that that is to be my reality? Is this our reality? I know I've, 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 I've been engaged in conversations with many of you and others, and, and I know that we are so upset these days that we can't even watch the news. We can't read the news. We don't even want to talk about things that go on. And i got to tell you, that's not... Being concerned about these things, being, you know, being against these kind of things is, is one thing, but to be controlled by these things to be dictated to by these things. And I'm talking from experience here. This has been a frustrating year for me. These things these things should not dictate whether or not we know rest. Things being the way we think it should be should not determine whether or not we rest. Some of you maybe remember the name Carla Faye Tucker. She was a young woman who had committed murder. Here in the state of Texas, she was the first woman to be found on death row since the Civil War. This was back in the day when George Bush was our governor, and he was having to deal with this situation. There was a a lot of debate over whether or not the death penalty should be carried out because she was a woman. I found it interesting to watch an interview with her conducted by Larry King. And it's something that I remember, even though it happened years ago, I remember this interview. So I looked it up this week to, to and I found the transcript of it because I wanted to get the exact wording. You see, Carla Faye Tucker was not a believer when she had committed murder. But after being incarcerated, she came to know Jesus. And her life completely changed. She confessed to what had happened. She admitted that it was horrible. She was devastated that she had done such a thing. But her life was different. In the interview, uh, it was interesting to hear Larry King just drill, trying to get some kind of emotion out of her. And after the, the whole thing, I mean, she, she shared her faith. She shared how she had come to know Jesus. She shared it, as, and all of this is going on in national television. She shared how this had changed her life and changed her heart. And finally, out of desperation, you could tell there was a little bit of frustration. At the very end of the interview, Larry King just asked the question, all of this, yet you still remain upbeat? And she said yes. And he went on to say, you have to explain this to me. You are days away from being executed. You're going to have to explain this to me. And then he said this, it can't just be God. To which she replied, yes, it can. She went on to say, it's called the joy of the Lord. When you have done something like what I have done and you have been forgiven for it, and you're, you're loved. That as a way of changing you. I have experienced real love. I know what real love is. I know what forgiveness is. Even when I did something so horrible, I know that because God forgave me, And I accepted what Jesus did on the cross. When I leave here, I'm going to go be with him. This is rest. It's not not that she didn't have to deal with what she had done. It's not that she didn't have to deal with execution. It's not that she didn't... It's not that she was not executed just days after this statement. But in the midst of all this, God in His mercy and in His grace made His rest a reality for her. And if He will do that for her, then won't He do that for you? If we're going to know the rest that God has designed us for, then we need to understand just who it is that rules the Sabbath. In verses 1 to 2 in our text in Luke here, we see what the problem is. In verse 1, on the Sabbath, his disciples were picking the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them on the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath law was what the Pharisees were so upset about. Now, the law did not forbid them to be plucking the heads and breaking them in their hands and eating it. And Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, it reads like this. When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, see, at this time there were paths, walking paths, all throughout the land, and many of these paths would go right through the middle of a field. And So it was common for people to just, in their traveling, to walk right through the farm fields. and As they're walking along, just reach over and grab the heads of the grain and just pull it off to grind it in their hand and to eat it. This was a common thing that happened. From this passage in Deuteronomy, it would appear that that was not considered work. The problem came if they took a sickle into the field and stole from the the farmer. Then they would be accused of stealing, but doing work then. So the law doesn't necessarily not allow them to be doing this, but it's what the Pharisees have done with the law is the problem, the issue here. You see, some of the Pharisees at that time believed that in order for Messiah to return, the Sabbath had to be kept by the whole nation. And so they were very careful about the Sabbath. And we know from our study of Scripture just how intense they got and how they added to the law and how they added to the requirements and how they added to the restrictions. And it became very burdensome, and it all depended upon what they could do. And so this is a problem. They see that they can't break these Sabbath laws, but then here are the disciples doing this. Why do you let them do this? They're asking Jesus. Isn't it interesting? They don't go to the disciples asking them, why are you doing this? In this passage, we find that they're going to Jesus. Why are you letting them do this? That's an important question to understand that. They're going to Jesus with this. Why are you letting them do this? And so Jesus answers them. In verses 3 to 5, he points out that David, you know, he went into the the very tabernacle and he ate the very bread that only the, the, the priests were allowed to eat after it had been on display, after it had been presented before God in the holy place on the table of showbread. And then when it was time for the new bread to be brought in, they would take the old bread off the table of showbread. And then the priest would eat this, a sign of, of you know, a fellowship. You know, one of the most intimate things we can do together is, what, is share a meal with each other. And so here was an incredible picture of the, the priest who are representing the whole nation sitting down and eating this bread that was presented to God. But David, who is not a priest, comes in and he eats it. What's Jesus getting at here? I think he tells us exactly what he means in verse 5. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. If David can eat this bread that the law does not allow, then how much more does Jesus have the authority to do what he sees as being right on the Sabbath? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, when he says this, when he makes this statement, Jesus is literally saying that he is God. He is the Lord of the Sabbath because it was God who established the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that he is God. Look with me again in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. The writer says this, For he has said somewhere, in verse 4, concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not, don't miss this, they shall not enter my rest. You see, this rest that we're talking about is not something, it is someone. This rest is literally God himself. This is his, this is of him. Not something, but someone, God himself. And so if Jesus Christ is indeed Lord of the Sabbath, then he he has the freedom to do with the Sabbath what he pleases. Do we live as though we are in charge, as though we are Lord? I'm not asking you, do you think that? I'm asking, do you live as though that were true? Do I live as though God's rest is dependent upon me? Once had a student, not at his hill, but another place, come up to me, Again, when we're talking about rest. And he was upset with me. He asked the question, are you telling me that I cannot do any of these things? If I'm going to know his rest, that I c- it's, it's not for me to, to do the things that we see in Scripture? That it's not within me to do this? Are you telling me that? And I looked at him and said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And his response is very memorable for me. He looked at me and said, oh, yes, I can. I couldn't believe it. But as I thought about it, I could agree with it. You see, it's very capable for you and me to do good things. I think all of us have people in our lives that are not believers, and then we could say they're good people. And so, really, is rest not within my grasp? Is it not within my ability, my capability? Really, Kelly, are you serious? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Interesting words and sobering words. Jesus says in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And so now we get excited. All I have to do is do. I just have to do his will. But look at what he says. Verse 22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? You see what they were able to do? We see here what, it, what, what is a possibility for us as mankind, what we can do. But then he goes on and says this in verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, what? Lawlessness. Isn't it interesting that the lawlessness is these acts of healing and prophesying. Casting out demons. Demons. Isn't it sobering to think what is capable of man? What man is capable of? But would never bring about the reality of the rest that we were created for. Because it is done apart from what? It's done apart from the life of Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, right at the end, he says this, I labor and I strive. according to his power, which mightily works within me. The source of our doing that brings about rest does not begin with you. It does not begin with me. It begins and finishes with God himself. So we've seen that rest is to be a present day reality. That Jesus is the ruler of the Sabbath. Because he is God. So then what is God's purpose for man with his Sabbath? I think we find this in verses 6 to 11, the second account of Jesus on the Sabbath. As he enters into the synagogue and he's teaching, there's a man there whose right hand is withered. Pharisees are there only for the sake of catching him at some kind of contradiction so they can do away with him. So they want to see, is he going to heal on the Sabbath? Because that would be considered work as well. That would be breaking the Sabbath. That would be breaking the rest. So what will he do? First of all, I think think there's two things that Jesus wants to show here, at least two things. Verses 6 to 8, I think he wants to show us that God's Sabbath rest is for man. God's Sabbath rest is for you. We see in verse 8, he knew what they were doing, what the Pharisees were doing, what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. He has something for this man on the Sabbath. And man's laws, man's regulations does not prevent Jesus from giving what he has with his Sabbath to this man. Remember what Mark says, chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Isn't it interesting that, mentioned it earlier, that man being created on the sixth day, the first thing he comes to know is the seventh day, God's rest. This was to be the reality for man since creation. And even though Genesis chapter 3 comes about, it doesn't prevent Jesus, who is God, from giving what is of him. You see, our salvation, folks, is a restoration. It's not a band-aid. Our salvation is not something that just kind of takes care of us until Jesus comes back and then in heaven someday we'll have what he always meant for us to have. Our salvation is a restoration. We have been, if we have placed our faith in Christ, we have been restored back to that which we have fallen from. Paul is clear about this in 1 Corinthians where he says, you have been washed, you have been cleansed. In Colossians chapter 2, you have been made complete. Past tense, present reality. This is your reality. He has his rest for man. he tells the man, get up, come forward. But then, something else we need to understand in looking at this and remember that the Sabbath rest is God's miraculous good for man. It is of Him, it is miraculous, it is beyond your capability and understanding, it is beyond what we can do. It is God's rest. Therefore, it is miraculous. And how do we see this here? In verse 9, as he calls the man to him to come forward, he says, stretch out your hand. In verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 10, after looking around at them all, they had nothing to say to him. Am I supposed to do good? Am supposed to do bad with the Sabbath? What am I supposed to do? What is it for? Well, what are they going to say? And so he shows his good in verse 10. Stretch out your hand. Now, I don't know about you, but in studying this, I almost missed this phrase. You know, we can just read right past it. Stretch out your hand. Because we want to get to the second part of verse 10. (laughs) But what's he doing but asking the man to do something that is beyond his ability? He cannot stretch out his right hand because it is withered. It's beyond him. Are you comfortable with that? Do you understand that God's rest is beyond you? Stretch out your hand in verse 10, and he did so, and his hand was restored. You see, so often, I know I'm guilty of this. This cannot be God's will. This cannot be what he would have of me because I can't do that. I think that's one of the dangers in knowing what our spiritual gift is. I'm not saying don't know what your spiritual gift is, but I'm saying one of the dangers of knowing what your spiritual gift is is that we refuse to do anything else that is not our spiritual gift. Because what? I can't do that. Jesus told Peter, get out of the boat and come walk to me. He told Moses, "Go be my spokesman." Moses says, "I can't speak." I wonder if Moses ever thought about that. He didn't tell him, "Go be my warrior." See, we know from history that Moses was a successful general in war. So God didn't go to him and say, "Be my warrior." He said, "What? Be my spokesperson?" What did Moses say? "I can't speak." Yeah, that's the idea. And if we're honest with each other, we have already proven in our life that we cannot bring about the rest that we're talking about. And I think that's why people get so angry when we say that this rest is for us. Because I can't do this. Well, listen, man can do what God says if God said for man to do it. You see, it's miraculous. Some of you know that one of the big struggles of my life, besides my height, is I battle with depression. And I have suspected for years that I could easily succumb to it. And that always was in the back of my mind. It always terrified me. Never has it become more real to me than the six years that I was away from you. It was clear to both Arlene and me that the Lord would have us move home to help my family with my dad because he had Alzheimer's. It was beginning to get bad. I remember a phone call that my brother, uh, who's actually, he and his wife are with us this morning. They've moved here. He called me once. He says, Kelly, if you want to visit with Dad, you better get here because his mind is slipping, and he's, we're losing him. And so it became clear to us after praying about it, and I remember talking with the elders about it, and they gave confirmation to it, so we moved with great plans of how this was going to be a wonderful ministry to my dad and my mom. After being there just for a little while, mom ended up getting really sick, chronic kidney failure. Didn't expect that, and it, it just snowballed from there. The economy collapsed while we were there, had been untouched for 20 years <laughs> until Kelly moved back. And then the bottom fell out. And I could take a full hour and not cover everything with just how depressing it became the weight of taking care of my parents. And it wasn't just for me, but I I took it on as though it was just for me. And all that was involved in that and trying to find a way to make a living and all that was involved in that... I can't tell you how much sleep I lost over those six years. I can't tell you how many times I'd wake up in the middle of the night staring into the dark or first thing in the morning and roll over on my side and just stare out the window. And it got so bad, and I really haven't told many people about this, but it got so bad that at one point I was upstairs sitting on the couch and the weight of all of this was just coming in. And I actually considered... And it scared me even as it was happening. I couldn't believe this was happening. I actually considered just curling up in the fetal position right there on the couch and just quit. And there was a spiritual battle going on at that very moment because it would have been so, I mean, that was just the easiest. I can't explain it. If you've struggled with these things, you know what I'm talking about. But just to, just quit and shut down. The Holy Spirit began to talk to me. He began to work in my heart. And he said, Kelly, you can do that right now because that's about all you can achieve. In your busyness, in your activity, to take care of all of this, that's the best that you can come up with so you can have it. Or you can rest in me. You can trust me. There were two questions the Lord kept asking me during that time. And He brought it to a head at this moment as I was sitting on that couch. The first question was this Am I sovereign? And the second question is this Are you mine? And if you can say yes to both, then my rest is yours now. And I can tell you that rest has been an increasing reality for me since that moment. Not that the problems were taken away. But rest in the midst. You see, you see, a small God has to get rid of your problems in order for you to rest, but a big God can give you his rest in the midst of the problem. He never leaves, he never forsakes. Back in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10, we read this. So you see, there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. Right now, there remains a Sabbath. There remains a rest right now for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. If you're going to know his rest, it will not be a reality until you cease from your work. And this is what the Pharisees did not want. You see in verse 11, but they themselves were filled with rage and discuss together what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees didn't want God's rest. They didn't want His miraculousness. Do you? You see, Jesus asks this question, or He he makes this statement. In Matthew 11, 28, Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. And that word means to cause to cease. It's almost like one person wrote the Bible. Do you think that God's rest is only a reality by what you can do yourself? Or is it miraculous? And that it goes beyond your ability. It goes beyond your capability. You should see it that way, for God's rest is literally Himself in Christ. I was speaking to a youth group in northern British Columbia one time, a small town called Smithers. A little town in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, I mean it takes hours to get anywhere else. When I arrived there, and it was quite the trek to get there, when I arrived there, the youth pastor was beside himself with, him, with shame. It's a Saturday night meeting, and only 11 kids showed up. He told me, Kelly, there's often more kids. I can't believe there's only 11. I'm so sorry. And I thought, well, that's okay. Let's, let's see what the Lord has for the 11. The and so we sat down, and we went through a Bible study together, and we talked about the rest of Christ. After the meeting was over with... Dan is the name of the youth pastor. He and his wife uh, took me back to their house for the night. And on the way, it was really one of those quiet drives. And finally, Dan spoke up. He said, Kelly, I think I know why you were here. It wasn't for the kids. It was for me. Really? Really? He went on to tell me that he is really frustrated. He, he's really worn out. He and his wife have been very busy working with the kids and trying to, t- trying to make a difference in their life, and they were just frustrated. It didn't seem like anything was really working. So we sat down in their living room that night, and I remember taking a napkin, napkin out and uh, just explaining to them Just drawing out diagrams and things like that. The students from his hill will know what I'm talking about. So those three circles. Depicting the journey that God had for his people and saving them from Egypt, taking them through the wilderness into the land of rest. And just talking to them about these things, explaining that this rest that you're seeking does not come from your knowledge of Scripture. It doesn't come from your education. It doesn't come from your theology. It doesn't come from the way you're able to explain things to these kids. But the rest that God has for you is Himself in the midst of all the activity that He lays before you today. And it's found in the person of Christ who says, when you see me, you see the Father. When you see me, you see his rest. When you know me, you know his rest, because I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And they had a lot of questions, and I was just too tired, and I finally just told them, guys, i got to go to bed. I got up the next morning, and the two of them were in the kitchen, and they were literally singing and bopping around and 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 kind of dancing with each other. And the kid was really kind of uncomfortable for me. (laughs) And they said, good morning. Sit down. And I said, good morning. What's going on? And they said, Kelly, we couldn't sleep. I said, what do you mean? We were tossing and turning all night. I said, how much sleep did you get? You don't understand. We didn't sleep. What are you talking about? And said, Kelly, we're laying there next to each other. And I turned to my wife and I said, can you believe this? And she turns her head to him and she says, no, can you? No. Are you not sleeping? No, neither am I. This is so exciting. This is incredible. And they said they started jiggling in bed. They started their dance there. They said, for the first time in our life, we've come to realize that this life that we have in Christ, this rest does not depend upon me to try to be like him. It doesn't depend upon me to try to understand these things. It doesn't depend upon me because it is all him. And they said, I've never had a night like that before. Dan's a pastor now. It's been 20 years. He's pastoring a church church in Alberta. I called him up one time I said, Dan, do you remember me? He says, yes, I remember you. I said, I'm just checking. How are you doing? And he says, he just went on to describe this, I am at rest. And I'm telling everyone who will listen that Jesus is my rest. Is he yours? Is Jesus your rest? Does our government have to act a certain way for you to know it? Is Jesus your rest? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of a pandemic, You give us the privilege and the reality of saying, I am at rest. We thank you that our circumstances do not dictate this. We thank you that our abilities do not dictate this. We thank you that our theology, our understanding, what originates from us does not dictate this. But Lord, we thank you. And we praise you that you dictate this. And that along with the man with the withered hand, you would have us come to you, Lord Jesus. And you would have us live what we cannot in and of ourselves. That you would have us say along with Paul, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so, Lord, we're left with asking you for your wisdom, thanking you that you give to all men generously and without reproach, to live the life you have saved us for, to be at rest today. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Calling Barbara Powell. You're you're missing from your seat. It's good, huh? Uh, okay, and Arlene, if you're with her, you might bring her in. Okay. So good to see uh, the Krauses back today. Dale and Charlotte and uh, the Ellsworths are here, and wow, it's just all good stuff. Good stuff. Okay. you make your way. Okay, all right, y'all are pretty close to sitting down. I'm going to open in prayer. Uh, dear Father, we uh, just are grateful once again to have your word before us, Lord, to to uh, we seek, Lord, the joy of life that's in it, Lord, that your son is in it, and um, we just want to take it and, and as it is plainly before us, Father, and without apologies or sugarcoating just to, to see what you've got for us, and you've given us a great book, Lord, and it's got a fantastic theme to it, and we're just uh, excited uh, to go through it, Lord. We ask that the studies would honor you and that we would be blessed by them. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. Okay, we were just about to finish chapter 2 last week, and we were, I'm going to pick it up at verse 17 and through the end, and as uh, as I uh, have said before, each chapter has a reference to something about the coming of Christ, and so it's a very exciting theme for us, and uh, it's going to start to pick up uh, in its uh, level of uh uh, of being referred to as we get through uh, the book. So let's pick it up in uh, chapter, excuse, chapter 2, verse 17. We've just seen some more of uh, Paul talking about the affliction that the Thessalonians were having. There's no doubt indeed that there were. But here we go in verse 17 he says, Paul speaking, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, more than once and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our joy our hope our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So once again, I think that you know, Paul uh, has got several uh, motives that are uh, driving the writing of this letter. One of those is answering the accusations that have been made to him by the naysayers. One of those was that he was cowardly, that, that he wouldn't come back to uh, Thessalonica. He was a hypocrite, all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, no, this is, they intended to come. They were, they were he was withheld. And he clearly delineates the parties involved here. He says, I, Paul, and then he says, Satan hindered us, and Satan hindered us. And that word, hinder, is, uh, means to essentially the, to break up the road uh, ahead, to make, to make a pathway essentially impassable. And uh, he names Satan in the process here. Now, that is... Pretty uh, eye-opening in the sense that when you consider who Satan is, uh, he is, yes, he's supernatural, but he is created. He uh, he is not God or a God. He is he didn't have what my wife calls the three omnis. He's not omnipresent. For instance, he can be in one place at a time. So we've got a specific indication of what a high priority Paul's ministry here at Thessalonica must be to Satan you know the equivalent if this was World War II this would be the equivalent of having you know Hitler uh, physically present on the beaches at Normandy when, when, when the troops stormed Normandy you know it's really significant that he would uh, that it, w- that it lo- rose to this level of priority And then we turn to a, bright, uh, a brighter note in verses uh, 19 and uh, 20. And we're going to have another reference to the, uh, the coming of Christ. And uh, Paul starts with a, essentially a rhetorical question when he says, um, for who is our hope or joy of crown of exalt- exaltation? He's basically saying, "What is what is our greatest blessing at the coming of the Lord?" And he says it's them, the Thessalonians, and I suspect he would add the Galatians and the Corinthians and uh, the Ephesians, the Colossians, all these, all these that he'd had a part in uh, bringing to uh, these people the word of God, the gospel, and they had received it and received eternal life, been born again, and this was a great joy for Paul, his joy. We're going to focus on his joy a little later as we get into chapter 3. I, I would uh, point up to you a, a difference, though, in this particular verse at the end of chapter 3 versus what we saw at the end of chapter 1. You remember when it said, uh, talking, he was Paul talking to the Thessalonians, he said they were to wait For his son, that's the father's son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And when I read this, I see a little difference. Does anybody else pick up on this? It says it's uh, what is his joy? Uh, It is even, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord at his coming? So do you see, anyone else see any difference in those two passages? When I do see these things, I go, well, what is difference? Uh, it seems to be, there seems to have been a passage of time as I look through here. In, in verse 19, excuse me, verse 10 of chapter 1, he said, what did he tell them to do? To wait. And when we go to uh, verse 19 in chapter 2, we see the same people in, even in the presence of the Lord, so when I start to see these differences, one thing I'll look at is what is the location of the people that He's talking to, all right? The believers in Thessalonica. What is their location in each of those verses? If we go to chapter one, to wait for the Son from heaven, where are those people when they, when they're given the admonition? Where what's their location physically on Earth? they are on earth right and when we go to uh, the end of chapter 2 it says "It's uh, what is their location in verse 20 verse 19 excuse me what is their actual location there in the presence of the Lord so on earth versus into the presence of the Lord now we've not gotten to the uh, passages in chapter 4 about the actual rapture but it you would, I'm sure you all know this. If they're not, if they're in the presence of the Lord at the rapture, what is their physical location at that time? Is it on the earth? No. It kind of limits them to maybe two places, right? Where would they be? Again, Porter? In heaven or in the air. That's it. Those are the two options in the air or in heaven. So there has to be at least some passage of time here the point of all of this is going to even get greater as we get into the third reference uh, of, the, of the coming of Christ which I hope we do today uh, in that there has at least been a passage of time and, and speaking of the coming of the Lord okay, something has occurred over time so I wanted to get that out there um, another thing is Uh, how about the fact that when Paul speaks of this joy it is seeing those people in the presence of the Lord and that tells us something important about what occurs afterward he recognizes these people he recognizes those that he knew on earth right and it tells us that we're going to recognize our family, our friends and our brothers, all our brothers and sisters in Christ when we are Uh, with the Lord so that's a kind of a great uh, thing to realize there he speaks of uh, I'll just go one more thing he speaks of a crown of exaltation and exaltation is I looked that up it's a triumphant elation or jubilation it's a rejoicing over a victory okay and he speaks speaks of of a a crown where where did paul get this crown that he speaks of any ideas christ and their the is they will be in heaven okay so we'll look we'll look at that too so this the crown here some crowns uh, sometimes they're spoken of as diadems which are like the gold the golden crown that a king would wear. And then sometimes they're spoken of as a Stephanos, which is a wreath. And this, this is Stephanos here, which is more of, a, uh, of an award. And those may well have to do with the judgment seat of Christ, also called the Bema seat. Now, uh, a lot of scholars, when they look at uh, the different crowns that are mentioned in Scripture, they come up with a few and they feel like these may be what it, things that would be awarded at the when Christ uh, uh, it, when we sit in his judgment. Uh, some of the other ones I've got I've written down the uh, passages but we won't turn to them. There's a crown of righteousness, a crown of life. Well, righteousness uh, is 2 Timothy 4:8, a crown of life that's in James 1:12 and Revelation 2:10. There is a crown of glory, 1 Peter 5:4. And then they're spoken of as incorruptible crowns in 1 Corinthians 9.25. And then we have this crown of exaltation, sometimes called a crown of joy or rejoicing. So when we get to the end of chapter 3, I'm going to focus a little bit more on where I'm going with this uh, regarding the coming of Christ. Okay? So let's pick it up. Any, Any questions there? Sorry I'm reverbing. So let's go to chapter uh, 3. I'm going to uh, start reading in uh, verse 1 and go to a little beyond verse 4. Therefore, and that's an important word. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you, As to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer afflictions. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. Okay, I'll stop there. Now... Therefore, in there kind of pulls in the previous uh, t- uh, teaching uh, and components of the letter that Paul had written. And it was, refer- it was referring heavily at the end of chapter 2 to the afflictions. So he's pull- it says there's a tie-in there to their afflictions. And I think for the Thessalonian people, there's a special risk as far as their afflictions. Yes, they're persecuted, uh, you know, uh ridiculed, mistreated, that type of thing. But they also had a risk of falling back into where they'd come from, a special uh, a special risk regarding their idolatry and their, their pagan religions. And so there was always a, a special risk for them falling. There's a pull back into that, uh, that idolatry. And remember I said that their religions uh, were heavily based in um, Immoral uh, uh, sexual practices and and drinking and that type of thing. So they have a special risk. And I believe the other tie-in to chapter 2 would be that affection and concern that Paul has had for these new believers. In fact, he's really wanting to know how they're doing. I think it's kind of interesting when you consider Paul and his team Uh, You know, on their missionary trips, all the things that they go through, all the physical hardships and the spiritual hardships, all that stuff they've been to. And the one thing that Paul can't endure is not knowing about the Thessalonians. It's kind of interesting. And it tells you the heart of Paul and his affection for them. And then, this is hard to believe, he says, uh, he starts telling them regarding their afflictions. You know, not only were they predicted, he, he says they were almost effectively guaranteed that they were going to have afflictions. And uh, it makes you ask, why would Paul tell these people when he's bringing the gospel to them about all these bad things that are going to happen? <laughs> you know, if he, were in a, if he were taking Salesmanship 101, he'd probably fail because he's laying out all these bad things that are associated with coming to the Lord. I mean... That's not how the world would do it. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we just ease into that kind of stuff, Uh, sugarcoat it a little bit, maybe? Or, uh, you know, we certainly don't want to discourage people, right? What do y'all think about that? I think. uh, Let's talk about trials for a minute. you know, Linnell pointed up when we were looking in chapter 2 about when Paul was telling uh, the people about w- how he came with the message to Thessalonica, it was with boldness. And she pointed up that he had, you know, we looked at all the persecution he suffered uh, at Philippi and that, not, that was not a punishment to it, but that was used to increase uh, his uh, boldness when he came to uh, Thessalonica, which is probably... Not the way most uh, people would, would respond to being severely persecuted. It only emboldened Paul. Um, I think Jeff uh, likened it to uh, the formation of uh, the forging of a steel uh, a sword, wasn't it? Uh, going through the store, uh, the forge, and being heated up under uh, high energy and, 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 and uh, treating that sword, making a solid. You know, instrument at the end. So, uh, I went through. I found a few ways that God uses uh, trials for His people, uh, and there are many, many. I just was able to identify three things. Uh, turn to First Peter, uh, first chapter, verses six and seven. This tells us that the Lord can use our trials to prove the reality of our faith. Okay? 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7 says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's one thing, to prove the reality of our faith. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, there's an important principle that God attaches to trials at times. One of, and it it's, is to enable us to comfort and encourage others. And I'll read that. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So when we go through some trial, we have that experience. It gives us a a level of credibility with others uh, to help them get through their trials too. Third one I found was so that uh, God can develop, so that we develop certain characteristics and graces. Uh, And God does this in his believers. And Romans 5 is the source of this. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, uh, we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, our trials knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So those are some ways that trials can be used. All right, any, any comments there? I well, think you've you lead off with that. You know? And I think if it were if I were leading someone to Christ or telling someone about Christ, that's probably not where I would start. Um, Because but for a believer, that's not a problem. It shouldn't be a problem. Because if we've tasted of If he knew it was best for me, he could keep the trial from me. So if the trial is coming, he knows that it's best. And so it it if we have truly a relationship with him, we go, well, okay, he's gonna walk me through it, this is what's best. So yeah, you can lead with that with someone who truly has a relationship with Christ. But how and yes, Mavis. And I I think Kevin, you raised it uh, last week. You said there's no prosperity gospel here, and there's you know, I'm not saying that that we should withhold truth, but uh, but certainly not paint some rosy picture. And a lot of times, you know, if you turn on the televangelist, you see all this uh, misinformation. I think that's given to try to lure people in, and it's almost a trickery. And, but Paul's just, you know, right up front with it. uh, it uh, it. He almost almost guaranteed it. Yes. And so, yeah, I thought that was good. Uh, now let me pick up in verse uh, 5. I wanted to stand alone with it. So it says, uh, I also sent to find out about your faith. Um, <clears throat> For fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And our labor would, would be in vain. That's no better, is it? And he, now Paul, he uses a term called the tempter. If I were to ask who the tempter is, does anybody not know in here? You know, that's funny. It's not God. God. So we know who it is. It's it's someone who has many names, right? And uh, the tempter is used here of Satan. He's got other names. I just picked out a few that correspond with this, the way he's addressed here accuser deceiver liar murderer and thief some of his names he's many has to do they are associated with the actual approach or attack that he has on a person tempter so that's that has some significance here with the Thessalonians do you know the tempter is only used twice of satan in the scriptures and any anybody remember where the other time is When he tempted Christ, exactly. Uh, Let's turn to Matthew 4, 3. This was the temptation in the wilderness. Remember, uh, Jesus was uh, fasting for 40 days, and this is when he came uh, upon him, when Satan came upon him. He says, uh, chapter 4, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after he'd fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. And he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So he comes to Jesus when he is in his most vulnerable uh, physical weakness, right? It says clearly he's hungry. And he's come to... The Thessalonians as well, Paul says. What do we suppose their vulnerability is, especially as opposed to someone else? Remember, I said, they were, they were under affliction, but they also had an added risk of falling back into, I believe, idolatry. And they don't have a grand support system there where they are. This is a small little group of mostly Gentiles in a very um, large and prosperous city that's highly uh, influenced by the pagan religions. And there's an extreme pull back into that for, for them. This is go- that's gonna be addressed directly when we get into chapter four, as far as the admonitions that Paul needs to give them specifically for their situation. But it does show us, you know, we're told in 2 Corinthians 2.11 to watch for the schemes of the devil. And this is one of his basic schemes. Whatever your your particular weakness, uh, your vulnerability is, that's what will be attacked. That's how we are tempted. So we learned something about how he works there. All right, let's pick up in verses 6 through 8. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, And that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us, just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Paul says that after they heard from Timothy, when he came back, he'd been sent from Athens. Paul and Silas had gone on to Corinth, and then they meet again in Corinth that uh, they could really live. And that has with it the meaning of uh, their joy of life was increased. Paul was comforted, it says, by... In, he said he was comforted in his distress and affliction by wor- what he heard from Timothy about these people. And it's a kind of ironic. I go, who's, who's ministering to who here? Because Paul is the one says that he, reads the, he receives the blessing. And that's based on his great love for these people and the great joy he gets from bringing people to Christ. You know, his ministry. Paul doesn't have a whole lot of perks in, in the material world, but he gets his kicks from the, uh, the people that receive Christ, and he knows he's had some involvement with it. Uh, yes? Yes. very good. And that's another thing And our, uh, the sanctification of life is not to mean, not meant to be something that you achieve and then you stop. It never stops until we're in the presence of Jesus Christ where he completes it. So that's a great point to to cause us to grow. Very good. And I don't want to skip over too quickly here uh, in verse uh, 6 good news was brought back by Timothy and let's what it says of your faith and love and that is great but is something missing let me just put that out there is something missing Paul has been working in a triad of Christian characteristics hadn't he up to now Sue did you have something I mean, faith and love, so hope. Ah, and he's used hope already right in the first uh, chapter he talked about the hope of endurance and he gave specific examples really uh, so something is missing here hope is, seems to be missing and uh, you have to say well why well we're gonna find out as we get later uh, into the book he's gonna address some specific questions there is a problem they have had their hope has been kind of uh, kicked around a bit because in the interim time, from when the Paul and Silas and Timothy were there originally, in that uh, interim time, some of the Christian brothers and sisters in Thessalonica have died. And although although these guys have been given instruction in the coming of Christ and the day of judgment and these kinds of very important doctrines, they really didn't have a grasp on. So what happens, you know, to our dead brothers and sisters? Do they just miss the rapture? You know, and then we're also going to see, they've, they've asked, what is, so what is the timing of this rapture uh, event in relation to judgment that's coming? So these are two big questions that are going to be addressed in chapters 4 and 5. Okay? So they had questions, and I think their hope was dashed a, a just a bit. Uh, so let's read verses 9 through 12. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account as we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith Paul has a great heart and I want to tell you honestly I've been convicted this entire week putting this together Uh, I read into these passages a challenge from Paul to believers, and he's, he's, he's basically saying, if you're really letting the Holy Spirit rule in your hearts, then there should be some evidence of the love and the compassion of the Holy Spirit. And compassion has never been an adjective used for me too much. Uh, but he's, he's lifting up the fellow believers. You know, we are to love. That has that a Christian characteristic. Kevin? Yes. I look back uh, and uh, to this point about compassion of uh, Paul. I think his compassion shows where he talks in verse chapter two, verse nineteen, uh-huh. he says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of in my text this crown of close to the crown of glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus is not you? So he's almost pointing back to them and saying, Hey, you're my hope. Absolutely. You nailed it. You you nailed a. This is a motivator for Paul. They are a motivator for Paul. They are his hope. uh, hope. right?" Right. And he's revealing his heart to us. And these are things that are supposed to be evident in our lives. I can love the brothers and sisters. I don't have a problem with that. I I get in trouble when he says the whole world. I get into trouble. And uh, you know, it's like I have a hard time loving some people. But that's not our admonition from the Lord. We are to Those people are, that I don't love necessarily, they're lost. And they need the truth. They're no more lost than I was before I got the truth. And so, you know, it's kind of a, 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 it's, a high, it's a degree of arrogance for me to take, to not be loving everyone the way I should. And that's just, it's been lifted up to me this whole week. So I know where my shortcomings are and, I need, and where I need to grow. Uh, now let's move to, to Paul's prayer life again. You know, night and day, earnestly, most earnestly. That's a double emphasis on his prayer. And it came to me, I was in the shower. You know, th- does he really pray? I'm thinking about it. You know, does he really pray night and day all the time? And how can anybody do that? He does. And you know why? Because his joy and hope is answered prayer. That's a, that's a fabulous motivator. How would you get answers, answered prayer if you're not praying constantly? And, and Paul does this because it's what gives him his life, his joy of life that we're reading about. Anybody have anything to add to that? Okay. Now, verse 10, he says something uh, about, let's see, where am I? As we night and day pray, most earnestly, that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Some of the translations, especially King James, is going to say perfect. Thankfully, NASB didn't do that to us because we, uh, we have, Americans have a hard time with that word perfect, Okay. And we always think of this no sin, perfect sinlessness stuff, and that's rarely how perfect is used. What, we, what it is more properly uh, uh, meant to be understood as is, is completion, is to complete, to perfect, to complete. And there's really two ways that that's, that's done. Uh, it can be complete uh, as in coming to the end of a journey, for instance, or, a, or, or fulfillment of a purpose. That's one way of completion. And then the other sense of completion is to be uh, complete as in fully equipped. Now, that was interesting to me, too, because I recall Jeff talking about when we had the father-to-son dynamics that Paul spoke of with relation to the Thessalonians. He said, as a father, part of our duty is to equip our sons, our daughters, equip them, prepare them, give them the necessary coverage that they need to go out into a world that basically uh, denies everything that they're taught in a Christian home or a Christian environment. And this is the idea that, that Paul's attached to uh, uh, completing their faith. I saw one analogy made to, this would be like between fishing uh, episodes, you know, the, the fishermen taking their nets and, and repairing them and reweaving and strengthening them. And that's kind of the picture here. And from a, from a Christian perspective, from Paul's perspective, this meant that he wanted, to, he wanted to be teaching them the word. He wanted to be discipling them. When we get into chapter 4, there's a heavy uh, emphasis on sanctification in that process. So we're going to get to look at the, what uh, sanctification uh, means for us. Any other comments on that? I'm a little reluctant to start here, but we're going to do it. Uh, In verse... So we've made it to essentially the end. Uh, Let me uh, then pick up uh, in uh, verse 11. It says, "Now, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, And for all people. That's almost a prayer right there. Uh, Just as we also do for you. So that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So I think we now are looking at maybe a little different aspect of the coming of the Lord. Uh, and I'd say it's different than what we saw in the previous two chapters, uh, probably by time at least. Again, um, so let me just say to start with, when we look at, when you take all the scriptures that have anything to say about the coming of the Lord or the return of Christ, uh, when you do a careful examination of the passages. Um, we find that we cannot, you cannot reconcile or harmonize into one single specific event, the coming of Christ. And what we discover when we study all the scriptures is that it's more or less a sequence of events that has to do with the coming, and it's over, occurring over a period of time. So I went, to, uh, I went to our Articles of Faith for Burning Bible Church just to see what we said about it. And uh, number 11 is interesting, and this is our statement of faith. We believe in the personal, premillennial, and imminent coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ, and this blessed hope has a vital bearing on the life and service of the believer. In that statement, there is more than one coming of Christ stated. We have, uh, well, it's personal, meaning it'll be the physical return of the glorified Jesus and it's a premillennial that's before his kingdom and it's also imminent that means in the next moment okay. and so I thought I'd kind of just put an overview on what it is we believe so we believe in the imminent return of Christ now that's to remove his church both living and dead all those in Christ and we call that the rapture From that point, when God calls us, we go to meet him in the air. Porter uh, mentioned that. Uh, We're meeting Jesus in the air. And then he's going to take us uh, with him home, which would be to his father's house, John 14, which is heaven, okay? And there we're going to be in the presence of the father and the holy angels. When he does that, we have to be, before we get into heaven, we have to be fit for heaven, all right? Something has to occur. Philippians 1.6 and Philippians 3.20 and 21, which I'm not going to turn to at the moment, says that basically, God, Jesus is doing a work in us right now at which we will be perfected, and that is sinless, at the day of the Lord, excuse me, the day of Christ, which is when he comes to get us. When we go into heaven, you know, nothing goes into heaven that isn't unblameable, sinless, perfect, and pure. We are not that right now. But, but we will be by the time we get there. And so that's where we go. And so we're going to be in heaven for a period of time. And things, we believe things are going to be happening on earth while, while we are with the Lord in heaven. And that at the end of that time, Christ uh, is going to come back to earth with, it, with us and his holy angels. And he's going to establish his righteous government on the earth. Okay? And according to Revelation 20 that rule on earth is going to be about a thousand years it's going to be exactly a thousand years and it ultimately will be followed by what's called the eternal state in which there will be a great white throne judgment and uh, God is going to burn up this this heaven and earth and recreate them for us so the question becomes where, where does this verse fit in with all that sequence of events that I just spoke about. Now, a lot a lot of scholars will look at the term uh, Christ coming with His servants, or excuse me, with His saints, and they uh, make a distinction between that and Christ coming for His saints, right? So they automatically would say, well, that's referring to the the coming to establish His kingdom, the quote the great quote second coming, but The real question to answer from that verse that we have before us is, when is it uh, that we are are presented uh, before God the Father uh, blameless in holiness? That's the real question. When are we presented that way? And this is going to be a great time to leave it because I'm not going to (laughs) answer. No. So what we're going to do is pick this up next week. And what we're going to do is look at the answer is actually in the wording for coming, the word for coming in the Greek words that are used for the the truth of the return of Christ. There are three of them, Epiphania, apocalypsis, and Parousia. Okay, so we're going to look at that next week and see if we can't get a better grasp on this particular verse. Okay, so that's what we'll pick up. All right. Jay, will you be able to close us in prayer, please?